What I'd really urge people to do is ask yourself, can you explain why Christ died beyond simply saying, for my sin? You are listening to Our Urban Voices with Dr. Alphonse Javet, a podcast that presents Christian narratives through diverse voices that impact urban ministry. Here is your host. Hello and welcome back to Our Urban Voices. I'm your host, Dr. Alphonse Javed. Today, I'm joined once again by Jackson Wu. Our topic today centers around his new book, The Cross in Context, Rethinking Metaphors of Atonement. We'll be talking about uh, the big word, atonement, how to consider the cross in the full context of the Bible and in diverse cultural contexts. Jackson is uh, currently the marketing manager for William Carey Publishing after serving for 15 years as a church planter and seminary professor in East Asia. His books include Reading Romans with the Eastern Eyes, uh, one Gospel for All Nations, and the Cross in Context. He has a doctorate from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. His uh, specialties include contextualization and the Bible's theology of honor and shame. He posts resources on his blog, jacksonwu.org, and we'll put that in the description for you all. Thank you for joining us today, Jackson. So good to have you with us. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. I'm in Arizona, so it, our weather's a lot better than probably what yours is. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. That's true. Um, so before we get started, please tell us uh, very briefly about your family. So here's my logic behind that. People are, are those who've been hearing our podcast. They know that I asked that to our guests because we believe family is so important uh, mm. and it makes us uh, um, relatable. It, it, it humanizes us as people. So they're not just listening to a, a professor, a, a theologian or a, an author or a missionary. They are listening to a person, a human being who has family life experiences, just like uh, the audience. So please share a little bit about your family with us. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you're totally right. It's these days on social media, people will dehumanize, uh, you know, so thank you for that. Uh, I have five kids uh, and one wife um, and uh, some places in the world that 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 matters. Uh, I have two kids out of the house, three kids still in the house. So we're still in the thick of things in terms of parenting and learning and being humbled and so forth and so on. So uh, so what are the ages? Uh, the oldest is 21 and the youngest is 14. Man, you are too young to have a 21. Were you married like the age of, like, I don't know. Like, like I got, I, I, I married the day I graduated or the day after. I don't know. I skipped my graduation uh, because marriage, getting married was more important. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Yeah, I got four children. And so, yes, you have uh, one more than me. But mine's are young, all of them. My oldest is six now. And then four, and then my twin girls are uh, two. So we just still working our way up. One day I will be sitting there. And I, but I miss the pictures from that stage. I don't miss the work from that stage. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Now, my, I love, man, my girls are just it's so wonderful. 
I never thought that before um, because I'm Eastern. So in Eastern culture, you are taught you got to have men, you know, you got to have boys. So I never prayed for girls. I just prayed like, for, for children, of course, and then expected that I'm just going to get boys. So two hmm. boys after the two, I was like, I was expecting the third boy. And there comes uh, one. The first news was as twins and second news as girls. Okay, cool. Good. Um, I'm so happy, man. They are so wonderful. The moment you get in the house, when I'm leaving, as I was leaving for the office today, she just hugged me and kissed me. One of them oh. always does that. And then when I, as soon as I get home, that's our first thing. Doesn't matter where she is in the house. She runs, does that. And then she takes my coat off and then uh, hugs me once she takes the, when she unzips the coat, she puts her little teeny tiny arms and just hugs me. So that, that all of this is just so wonderful. And the boys just sit over there. Yesterday, my older <laughs> boy was like, what's up, Alphonse? I said, ah, oh, that's new. Okay. That's funny. I'm super affectionate. So uh, I hug my kids all the time. And so don't, when they decide to stop doing that, you just kick it into gear even more. Give That's them right. more love and affection. And so my kids know at any time I may just come over and give them some loving. <laughs> that's, that's good. That's good. Uh, to start off, can you provide us a short definition of atonement and everything it includes? And uh, of course, um, when I say everything, I'm exaggerating. We don't have, uh, <laughs> people need to buy your book and understand more and maybe read even more. But you understand what I mean. Everything, at least give us some idea. Absolutely. You know, and of course, I, I unpack everything in the crossing context, you know, a lot more fully. But, you know, most people understand that reconciliation is a major part of atonement. It's the prominent connotation, but it's actually not the most fundamental meaning. Uh, atonement biblically refers to the process of making things right. It's how people seek God's favor. Uh, as one Old Testament scholar, uh, James Greenberg says, uh, defines uh, the word, the Hebrew word for us, to repair or create a new protective connection hmm. you know, between the worshiper and the Lord. I love that. So clear. Repair or create a new protective connection. You know, so it's about connection. But I, theologians often claim that atone, the word atone implies appeasing wrath. And that's a half truth. Hmm. Uh, you know, there are several passages where that's that's definitely there. But it also, in several passages, simply indicates to entreat or seek favor. So it doesn't necessarily imply wrath, though it, it could. Um, it, it, nor do all those passages clearly speak of punishment. So a lot of times it's just establishing that relationship. And, and when you dive into the text, there's a whole web of terms that help you understand the function of atonement and, and what it is that people are seeking after, uh, which, which is one reason why I wrote the book is because of all different metaphorical language around atonement. That, that's awesome. So what is a good metaphor of atonement? Ah, isn't that the million dollar question? That's right, uh, right? Well, you know, everybody's familiar with these various atonement theories, Christus Victor, penal substitution, ransom theory, so forth. And they all have the metaphors they use. Uh, but one of the reasons I wrote the book is because I started realizing that systematic theologians who use those categories and biblical interpreters, Old Testament scholars, and so forth, they're really having different conversations entirely. And the whole logic of atonement depends on the biblical metaphors and the metaphors you use. And I'll get into it in a second, but the Bible uses three primary atonement metaphors. And while those atonement theories are good as 
and as much as what they say, it doesn't get to the way the Bible itself contextualizes uh, the atonement. All those atonement theories and the metaphors they have are contextualized for, for some context, some historical period. They're answering certain questions that arise from a certain period of time. And so it's not that they're bad. It's just that they are limited by their context. And so saying, talking about a, a, a best metaphor is a, a little bit of a tough question. Uh, I prefer to primarily emphasize the biblical uh, metaphors, but we'll get into that. Um, and, and you're going to talk about those three metaphors that you just said that, right? In a minute, I right? will. I, I just figured I, that if I went on to that, we go, we, you know, I'd go on talking for it. An hour, so I figured. I just want to make sure the audience <laughs> understand that we are not missing each other. When you said three, we will be talking about those yes. three things. In the introduction to your book, you mentioned that Christians have disagreed sharply on atonement. Can you provide some examples? Absolutely. All you gotta do is Google uh, atonement and say, especially when it comes to the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. There's all sorts of fighting words out there. Uh, it's been penal substitutionary atonement. It's been compared to divine child abuse uh, because that's the, oftentimes the way people perceive it as this angry God kills his own son so that he's not angry. Um, and so you, you go back and forth, these debates about uh, what is uh, biblical, what is good. And, and, and oftentimes the debates center around what is most central. That uh, people will accept this or that theory, but then say, but ultimately it all comes down to this theory. So, so much uh, uh, back and forth ends up being very divisive to the church, and which is ironic because the, the doctrine is so much about reconciliation, right? Right, right, right. So why, why is looking at the cross and atonement in the context of the whole Bible important? And how do we, or how do you chart a way forward? Well, historically, theologians offer a select group of atonement theories uh, to talk about. But by contrast, the Bible never presents like systematic theories like this. Uh, biblical writers instead act like uh, master chefs who offer a, a succulent buffet of truth, you mm. know, but they use just a, a few basic ingredients. Now, imagine... We lived in a society where you could only have a few meal choices, say fried chicken, pasta, scrambled eggs, and maybe chicken dumplings. In this imaginary culture, uh, people are arguing about which dish is the best, fried chicken, no, no, scrambled eggs, uh, chicken dumplings, so forth and so on. Well, if you know anything about cooking, then you simply take a step back and realize, wait a minute, all of those dishes actually have the same few ingredients. You know, if you just have a little flour, eggs, chicken, milk, and potatoes, you can make those, but also a whole array of culinary options, right? Uh, you can make waffles, potato soup, a basic omelet, so forth and so on, right? Now, I use this analogy in the book because essentially the ingredients represent the small set of biblical metaphors that you find uh, that can be rearranged in the form of numerous doctrinal theories. But what we do is this, we tend to start with a limited set of atonement theories, these dishes, and then overlook the more fundamental elements or ingredients that are common to those theories. And so as, uh, to use a Chinese idiom, we essentially lose the starting line, right? Wow. We, we start in the wrong place. So we, what we end up doing is we end up settling for what's merely true and compromising the broader teaching of, of atonement. 
there are three fundamental basic metaphors that you see all throughout scripture when it comes to atonement. Atonement is, de is depicted as purification, you know, purity, purifying sin. Uh, uh, it is uh, bearing, to bear sin, to bear away. And uh, the other has to do with payment. That's where you get ransom ideas and so forth. So payments, purification, and bearing. Everywhere the atonement is talked about, at least one of those three metaphors is, is used. And they do have an inner logic, and I get into that in the book. They are interrelated, but those are the fundamental ingredients that help us understand what the Bible is really getting at. Wow. All right, so my next question is, uh, let me break my question in two pieces. To what extent, if at all, uh, was this book influenced by how the different cultural contexts you worked in view the cross? So that's, that's the first piece. The second piece of this question is, have you seen a difference in how persecuted versus more comfortable Western Christians view the atonement? Well, let me start with the second question first, because uh, yeah. I think it's a little easier. I don't think persecution and comfort are the primary dividing lines that spur people to think about the atonement one way or another. I think it has to do with other cultural factors. And this is where I get into the first question, whereas I started seeing how people have in different cultures are emphasizing different things, but they don't necessarily contradict. It's oftentimes a matter of emphasis or uh, priorities and metaphors. So uh, I think something like, for uh, example, one's understanding of justice, what counts as justice is going to have a major impact on what you think. So there's, I talk in the book about retributive justice, restorative justice, and covenant justice as just an example of how, depending on what kind of justice you tend to emphasize, it's going to incline you to maybe emphasize penal substitution versus, you know, some other theory. Okay. Uh, and then there's various cultural factors as well, you know, whether you're a little more individualistic or uh, you focus on spirit, you know, fear power cultures, you know, that's going to incline you maybe one way or another. So I think that living in other cultures and, and talking to people who are different than me helps me appreciate how metaphors and stories affect us and how it affects the biblical writers. That's so powerful because uh, in, in our culture here in the Western, so that therefore, you know, back to the question, original question, you know, if there's a difference, right? So have you seen a difference? So I think the difference would be based on the cultural um, identity. So in individualistic culture, it's all about me. Even, even I, I see that even uh, my own preaching has been affected by the culture here because my preaching used to be, I come from Pakistan, so that's a collectivism uh, type uh, culture. You, you are a tribal or communal community. So you talk about us more mm. than I. So over there, it was like, yes, he, is, he, he died for us. He died mm. for all of us, right? But here it's like, it's personalized. Nothing wrong with that. But yeah. the idea is, is, you know, when you look at uh, even John 3.16, the most famous verse for that is, it says that he loved the whole world, which affects the missional approach, yeah. how we are doing evangelism missions, yeah. all of this. Um, and I think it, theology it, is the, the bedrock for that, where it comes from, but it's influenced by the culture. Yeah, and because our theories of atonement and the ones we tend to prefer tend to be so informed by our culture, doesn't mean they're unbiblical, but they what we emphasize is by our culture, we end up actually having subtle or proxy culture wars yes. in terms of, I tend to be more individualistic, so I emphasize this atonement theory is better than that theory, 
whereas they yeah. don't necessarily contradict no. and they're ox- they're proxy culture wars yeah well that's why we have such a huge divide between the uh, even the early on uh, you know when you look at the uh, church history you see eastern church versus the western church and uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure that if they sat down and they thought about like well culturally we are different so we need to appreciate the culture and then move forward uh, with those uh, uh, how the justice is viewed of course it's very different uh, uh, and and uh, well, let's move on because i love this mm. whole idea of shame mm. and honor that you're bringing in there too so from the from your time serving abroad among christians were there any contextualized stories or ideas about the cross that were particularly surprising or impactful? Um, you know, actually, I'm more surprised at how the same debates in the West are adopted elsewhere with yeah. very little appreciation for the ways that their own culture might contribute to a more robust perspective. Hmm. Um, I think that's what grieves me most is that. Um, what ends up happening in a lot of other places in the world, they value tradition. They value the heritage of the Christian faith. And so they will say essentially like, well, Christianity came from the West, which is again, only a half truth. Uh, And so we respect that tradition. And so they'll just wholesale adopt a lot of ideas, but um, because, well, that's what I'm supposed to believe. Now, eventually people work out for the owner for themselves, but initially that's their starting point. And when you, that's your starting point. Uh, they would honor tradition. You oftentimes absorb and get caught in some of those same debates. Right. Um, so yeah, there are things out there, but it, the thing that jumped out to me more are the, is the lack of contextualization. Uh, frankly. Wow. You previously came on the show to talk about honor and shame culture, which I encourage the, um, the, the audience to just go back and listen to that episode too. But how does that relate to or could inform our view of atonement? I actually have an entire chapter dedicated to that question. Okay. I start off by asking, well, what function do the sacrificial offerings have? How do they work, right? Mm-hmm. And in a, in a word, sacrifices work by vindicating God's honor. You know, effectively, sin spits in God's face. Our words defame his name, right? And so sacrifices are regarded as gifts that vindicate God's honor. The giver sets aside his or her own face and gives God face. The worshiper acknowledges God in the higher position and confesses our lower position and, and our sin. So sacrifices honor God as, as glorious. And the overall argument of that chapter basically breaks down into three parts. So people can understand my logic. First, giving the offerings uh, prescribed in the Mosaic law sets God apart as holy. You know, mm-hmm. sanctifies God. Second, sanctifying God means giving him unique honor, regarding him as uniquely glorious. I think that's the key move, understanding that sanctification, sanctifying God is giving him unique honor. And so if therefore only when God's honor is vindicated is set atone for. So that connection between holiness as unique honor, I think is really key to understanding how honor and shame work together with atonement and the sacrifices. Wow. I hope uh, people who are listening to the this uh, this episode understand that you are not able to unpack everything. You're just giving them little something to understand, and uh, at least in this conversation. And I hope and pray that they go back and uh, uh, buy the book and read through because these are very important truths, and uh, often 
missed in the conversation, even from the pulpit. They are missing. We just focus mm. on aspects of that. We, for example, we'll talk about the holiness of God or sanctification of uh, um, men uh, who come to Christ, of course, uh, in the pursuit of holiness. Uh, they're being uh, sanctified. So, but just thinking about how this this idea applies to God too, when we set Him apart, the saint idea. I, I just mm. preached recently on being saint set apart. But how do we put set God apart? That the the the, the I these kind of uh, things are not often discussed. We don't even think uh, with the with that lens, um, with that kind of depth. So it's interesting. We all set certain things apart as distinctly honorable or worthy of things and use biblical language. We're sanctifying it. Right. Uh, and so uh, we understand this intuitively, but we sometimes when we go to scripture, we have a concept divide and we don't realize how, how connected our world and the biblical world is. So I'm really hoping that chapter uh, opens up some eyes to see atonement in less like abstract terms and in right. more concrete terms. So did you, in the chapter, I've not read the chapter, um, did you talk about, like, um, did you unfold that issue where Jesus says that sanctify me as I have, uh, you know, the whole idea in John when he says that, yeah. did you discuss at all? That gets referenced, uh, yeah, for okay. sure. But, but also I want to point out the fact that the objects in the tabernacle were sanctified. Yes. You know, so yeah. we oftentimes think of only God or people, but also objects. objects. Well, if, if part of what atonement does, as I talk about the book, is it actually makes things holy hmm. and the atone, the tabernacle and the temple actually have atoned sacrifices made for them. These are objects. Right. We have to start scratching our head and going, wait a minute, hold on. Do I understand what's going on here? Uh, so from a more practical science standpoint, you mentioned in the introduction of your book how you knew that writing this book would probably cause you. Um, to lose friends challenging the status quo in some Christian circles can lead to being called liberal or heretic, as you say. Uh, why did you think you would lose friends? And what gave you the courage to publish this book nevertheless? Thank you for that. That's a, yeah, for me, this was a, it was personal and, and, and grieving as I was writing it because I've seen people basically to use modern day language, get canceled or uh, put a tag of suspicious. If you don't toe the party line, whatever that denominational thing is, there's so much mm -hmm. virtue signaling unwittingly that you have to use certain buzzwords. And mm -hmm. if you challenge any part of, of a theological view or, or even a teacher, all of a sudden they assume that all these other things follow along. Mm -hmm. And so I've just simply seen it too much. We see it on social media all the time. Uh, to where people can't, it's like all or nothing. So right. uh, that's, that's one, you know, but I think we've lost the, the ability to have nuance and to appreciate nuance and just to be humble. And so that's one reason why I had a, a, an appendix titled uh, affirming penal substitution, but not its logic. Right. Because I want to say, Hey, you, because I, I find, I find this mostly from uh, penal substitutionary friends, uh, uh, who think that you, you have to follow exactly the logic that everybody said. I'm like, no, you can have all these things, but there's certain bits of logic that are problematic. And if we could address those things, well, I mean, perhaps we'd be more faithful to scripture. So mm. I felt the obligation to say something 
just because when you see these things and you're talking about something so fundamental as the cross, you have to say things. Hmm. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, there, I kept seeing these questions that no one was answering and these observations that no one uh, was highlighting. Uh, well, I said no one was highlighting. You'd see it here and there. You'd see it buried in, in like among biblical scholars, but it wasn't in, you know, the popular literature. Like, for example, the meaning of bare sin, that literally that language in the Old Testament has opposite meanings, literally opposite meanings. But you don't see it in English because it gets translated out oftentimes as forgive sin. Uh, so you go, oh, that has an impact if we're going to say Jesus bore our sin, you know, so I wouldn't unpack that. And then I saw in Galatians 3 how people oftentimes get Jesus' death and the curse backwards, where when you look at the dynamics, he dies and then becomes a curse because it's building on Deuteronomy. But a lot of theories get it the other way around. They say he was cursed and then he died. So, I mean, there's all these kind of things in the logic that you go, wait a minute, hold on. That's not exactly what you see in scripture. How do, how do, what do we do with this? So I want, really just wanted to present this for public conversation so that we can be more faithful to scripture. And if I'm wrong, then great. Somebody pointed out, let's have a conversation so that we can be more faithful. Well, I'm glad that you're open to um, those uh, conversations and willing to receive, uh, you know, criticism, uh, valid criticism. Um, but let's hope uh, this episode brings that uh, um, good conversation. Um, for today's takeaway, what does this mean for the average Christian? What does this mean for an urban pastor? working in New York City or even like in Bombay or London for that reason? Well, for, first and foremost, I think it helps when we understand these dynamics, we can explain with more clarity and flexibility what it means to say that Christ atones for our sin. We can explain why he died. Hmm. Um, we can understand, uh, too, we can under, when we can interpret scripture more faithfully and more meaningfully without, you know, without syncretism. You know, we can contextualize the gospel. Uh, we can also overcome points of division, like I've talked about, where uh, I think that's important so that we're not, a, uh, what do you call it, uh, you know, demonizing people. And so uh, these, these are really practical in terms of sharing the gospel, interpreting scripture, and loving and being United Church. Amen. Before we close out today's episode, is there anything else you would like to add? You know, what I'd really urge people to do is ask yourself, can you explain why Christ died beyond mm. simply saying for my sin and how he atones for sin? I, I just find again, and people too often assume these answers, pastors assume their congregants know. And, uh, and I would be curious to see what people say. I just challenge people to do that so uh, they can see the need for the book. Yeah. Jackson, Jackson, if a listeners wants to get in touch with you, what are the easiest ways? Well, I'm on social media. Uh, if you just type in Jackson, you'll see me. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Um, and my website is Jackson Wu. That's W-U uh, dot O-R-G. Um, and of course, there's my books on Amazon. Great. That will also be included uh, in the description, uh, this episode's dis description. And for the last thing, because we talk about heavy topics and we were we just talk about potential, uh, you know, um, um, a critique and, uh, you know, even people considering you 
heretic or uh, whatever other name they're going to give you, we'll see that future is going to tell us that. But we do talk about heavy uh, topics, right? So I like to ask you to tell us a joke to lighten the mood. <laughs> well, I have kids in the house, so I get those all the time. Okay, here goes. How does the man on the moon cut his hair? How? He clips it. Ah. <laughs> Good job, bro. That's awesome. That's great. Thank you so much for being on the show again. That was uh, Jackson Wu. And thank you to all our listeners. We truly could not do this without you. If you learned something, have a topic suggestion, or would like to leave us feedback, drop us a note at oururbanvoices.com. Be sure to subscribe to the show and leave an honest review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tune in next week for more honest discussions from Diverse Voices. You've been listening to Our Urban Voices with Dr. Alphonse Javed, which presents Christian narratives through diverse voices that impact urban ministry. Please check back for new episodes every week.